นโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
what is called for, the kind of effort that we're supposed to be making, is that just right effort that means that we can see where we're missing the point. If, if ease of being is potentially there, like Ajahn Chah's image of the purity of water is always there, the purity is potentially always there, it's just all the other stuff we've added to it. And how, can we, how can we see beyond all the distortions, all the disfigurements of consciousness? How can we find our way, see our way through the habits of story-making? saying in the beginning of meditation this evening, we have these habits of creating stories and believing in them. Based on the past, based on the future. Uh, and these distort and disfigure the heart and mind and we don't have ease of being. And so how can we make that just right kind of effort that means we can let go of that which is not necessary, that which is impure, that which distorts and disfigures. The story that's associated with this verse, um, I like to sometimes go back and, and read the stories that the tradition tells us are associated with these verses. Uh, verse 36 is an interesting story about a young man who was um, from a well-off family, uh, the son of a banker, a rich kid, and didn't really go without anything, uh, had everything he wanted, but he was unhappy. And so he met one of the Buddha's disciples and, and, and uh, I guess was impressed by him and said, well, you know, what is it that I can do that uh, makes a difference, that can, that can find contentment, can find joy, can find ease of being? And so he was encouraged to be generous. And so he was generous and that didn't work. And so then he was encouraged to keep the five precepts and that still didn't work and so then he's encouraged to keep the eight precepts and still he wasn't really contented didn't find ease of being and so the suggestion was made well you know why don't you become a monk you know really you know commit yourself to this completely so he did that he went forth and became a bhikkhu and then he had two teachers one teacher taught him the uh, abhidhamma another teacher taught him the vinaya and uh, if you know what the abhidhamma is like a uh, really sophisticated, complex um, interpretation of, of, of the Buddha's teachings, which um, are very difficult to understand. And then if you know anything about the monk's rules, the Vinaya, well, 227 rules to start with, and then there's all the permutations and, and explanations on all those rules. And this poor young monk was getting totally spun out by uh, all of this. And so... Eventually he gave up, the story says he gave up uh, his practice and, and uh, I think if I remember correctly there was some young novice saw him standing there in one place all emaciated, skinny, looking green, his veins sticking out and a really sad case. And so uh, went and told, probably went and told one of the monks and then one of the monks probably went and told the Buddha. But anyway, one way or another the Buddha called this, this young monk in and... <clears throat> and said, is it true that you've, you've stopped practicing? Is it true that you've lost faith or lost confidence? And, uh, and this young monk said, yes, it's definitely true. Uh, I went forth looking for some space, looking for some freedom, looking for contentment, and uh, all I've got is just more of this and more of that, and Abhidharma teaching and Vinaya teaching, and, and I just can't take it. 
So the Buddha said, well, can you do just one thing? Or he says, just, what you've got to do is just one thing. You've got to watch over one thing. Uh, all this other stuff, yeah, well, that's all right. But just one thing, you've got to watch your mind. And this, uh, this resonates with, uh, with a story in the life of Ajahn Chah, which many of you uh, will have probably come across, where he had been doing a lot of study and, and had been reading the commentaries, uh, the Visuddhimagga, reading all about the, the, uh, the explanations and commentaries on, on morality and the explanations and commentaries on, on concentration and the explanations and commentaries on wisdom. And, and it basically was doing his head in. I, I don't know if he used that expression, but something like that. It was doing his head in. And, and uh, fortunately, he came across Ajahn Man, uh, one of the great teachers uh, that was around at the time. And, and he told Ajahn Man, he said, look, this is doing my head in. He said, I just, you know, I've been reading all this commentary. And, and he said, I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. And Ajahn Man said something similar. He said, well, he said, yeah, that's a lot. But he said, can you make it a little? Instead of focusing on all the proliferation, all the many, can you bring it back and do one thing? Can you watch the mind? Watch the heart? Just do this one thing. So this, I think, is a very important point, that um, principle to to consider that the the many of the Buddha's teachings, all the many aspects of the Buddha's teachings, and not just the Buddha's teachings, but all the different teachings. These days, you can get all sorts of different variations and interpretations on the Buddha's teachings. And then you can get you know, Advaita teachings as well and, and a little bit of Sufi teachings and some Hopi Indian teachings and some uh, Whirling Dervishes teachings and you can get all sorts of things thrown in there together and, uh, and it can be too much. It can be useful. It can be useful if we know how to do the one thing, maybe. And that is to keep a perspective on the mind itself, to have that... Capacity of awareness, I like to think of awareness as a capacity, that capacity of awareness that can accommodate the many. If our awareness is too tight, too narrow, too small, then when there's all this, many, whether it's many Dhamma teachings or many experiences or many problems or many bits of data, many issues, many opinions and views, if our awareness is too tight and too narrow, then we can't accommodate the many, and we get caught. So, uh, again, this this principle of uh, we want ease of being, well, I would suggest what we need is a broad, expansive kind of an awareness that can accommodate the many. So this is the protected and guarded mind, or the protected and guarded mind leads to ease of being. So we could interpret that as being a very... Kind of, we've got to keep control on everything. Yeah. We've got to keep control and keep a close focus on everything. And we can make our meditation into a control exercise. Yeah. Sometimes when you hear the teachings of, uh, of Buddhism as they're presented, you know, they can come across as like uh, mind-controlled exercises. And we can engage the mindfulness of breathing, so-called mindfulness of breathing, as a concentration control exercise. Well, if we're already coming from, a, uh, as many of us are, from a, an ego that's conditioned with control freakery, we just love to control everything. The ego just loves to control. My ego just absolutely really gets off on controlling things. 
Uh, some people call me a control freak, and I refute that, and I say I'm a control freak in recovery. Uh, I, you know, I used to be a control freak. Now I'm a control freak in recovery. I have a little bit of perspective on it. I still, you know, can fall into such tendencies. Uh, but I think to all of us these days, because our education... Uh, tend towards the, the ego is shaped in its way. It, it, it can do this. It loves to control. Yeah. Our education doesn't school us in dwelling in awe and wonder at the mystery of life. If you're lucky, you might have a, a really creative uh, English teacher with, with, with a beautiful appreciation of the mystery of life. Uh, whether you get that in RE or not, I don't know, but Probably very few of us got much education in accessing that expanded state of consciousness that is able to accommodate the many without becoming uh, too tight and too, crea- too contracted. So this uh, line that says, the protected and guarded mind leads to ease of being. Well, in the story associated with this, this one young monk, you know, where, where it's quoted the story about what happened, it says, what it actually says is the Buddha said to this young monk, can you control one thing? Now, I don't have access to the Pali on this, and even if I did, I, don't know, I wouldn't be able to understand it, but whether the Buddha really said control one thing or whether he said watch over one thing, what we mean by controlling is very important. The kind of effort that we're making in meditation. What, what, what? If we don't have a clear sense of this, then, as I said, our ego's compulsive tendency to want to just control everything, we even bring that into... We try and spiritualise our ego. And that's, that's dangerous, I think. Many of us have made that mistake in practice, that we use this ability to concentrate, concentrate, focus, focus, and exclude anything we don't like, anything we're afraid of, anything that makes us threatened, threatened and it doesn't go away but we might through this willful concentration happen to break through drop into some very attractive state of stillness that could well happen and that's that could be very luscious really delicious really uh, attractive and we might get addicted to that and want to do that again and again and again but in the process what, what are we exercising Are we exercising mindfulness? Are we exercising awareness? Or are we exercising our compulsive need, egoic need to control everything? So this right kind of effort that we hope will take us to ease of being, this watching over and protecting the heart and mind, is a a very good contemplation. Uh, Continually, I contemplate this a lot. And finding different examples. It's like the kind of, for instance, the, the kind of uh, effort you're making when you're at the keyboard. Yeah. Is it a compulsive controlling? Are your shoulders up around your ears and you've completely lost your centre? Yeah. That kind of effort brings a lot of stress into the body, brings the energy all up into the head, and then we, we lose balance, we lose perspective. Or for those of you that uh, drive a car, uh, an image I've often uh, uh, suggested before. Yeah. What kind of effort does it take to control the car? 
Now you're in control if you're the driver. You're in control of the car. But what sort of effort do you make when you control the car? How do you hold the wheel? That's good to think about that, to feel that. Not just to think about that, but to feel that. What sort of control am I exercising over the vehicle here? You know, with the way we hold the wheel, with the way we look at the rear vision mirror, you know, the way we exercise our feet on the pedals, or you do. I haven't driven for 36 or something years, so, but I can still remember that if you get it right, it's lovely. It's like playing a musical instrument. I used to love driving. It's a very beautiful thing to be doing, knowing how to take the curves and, and change gear and... and uh, it can be a very beautiful, lovely, in-the-body experience. Or talking about playing music, there's a, a story in the scriptures which many of you will be familiar with, where the Buddha was standing on the banks of a river and, and talking about the subject of right effort. And a boat went by and somebody apparently was on the boat playing a musical instrument. And the Buddha raised this image and said, well, the right kind of effort is it is like you know, if the string of that musical instrument, whatever it was, I don't suppose they had violins in those days, but uh, if you know what a violin, if you tighten your peg too much, it's too sharp, that's not it. You know, if it's too loose, that's not it. There's a just right. You know, it's always that lovely period before an orchestra starts playing where everybody's tuning up and getting their instrument ready, you know, tuning their instrument. Well, in many ways, our meditation is like that also. We're tuning our attention. We're tuning our effort. So it's just right. And just as with a a musician, as the years go by, you get good, hopefully, (laughs) if you're a good musician, you get good at tuning your instrument. But you've got to be very embodied. You've got to be listening. You're not just feeling the peg as you turn, turn the peg. You're listening. You're turning the peg and you're listening as you play the note. You're feeling for the just right attunement of the instrument. And likewise with the effort that we're making in our practice to control, to watch over this heart, this mind. That just right kind of effort is not something anybody else can tell us to do. We have to be really in the body. You know, I've, I've meditated and afterwards you stand up and you're kind of all dizzy and fall over. Your eyes are all blurry because you're kind of concentrating too hard. Well, that's not the right kind of effort. And then probably we're all familiar enough with the kind of effort where your mind is all over the place and you're dreaming about this and dreaming about that and, and there's no clarity, no stillness at all. That's not the right kind of effort. So there's a place in between where there's the right kind of control that means it's evidenced by a settling. So this this applies to the techniques that we use or whether we use techniques at all. As with driving, my father taught me to drive. It wasn't a very pleasant experience. I'm very grateful to him for the effort he made, but uh, we didn't really... um, We weren't very nice to each other in the process, uh, it was very frustrating for him and very frustrating for me uh, to be learnt, be, to be taught to you know, let your foot off the clutch at just the right rate and to change the gear and so on. But you have to be taught these things. Uh, these days I think you've got to pay a lot of money to a, 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 
a driving instructor and before you can even go for your license and uh, it sounds like an absolutely ghastly job to be a driving instructor but uh, you've got to go through that stage of the instructions you do this then you do that you don't you don't take your foot off the clutch too quick you don't take your foot off the clutch too slow if you put on the put on the accelerator and take your foot off the clutch too slow well you know what happens then so it's just getting the timing right well in the beginning you've got to really exercise slowly repetitively tediously but once you've got it you've internalized it you know you don't think about putting your foot in the accelerator and taking your foot off the clutch it just happens because it's embodied and you've learnt it really learnt it and then you can enjoy driving go along some mountain roads and and it can be a really pleasant fun experience and, or similarly with a musical instrument when you've really learnt it you can get creative and make some beautiful tunes well similarly with our approach and relationship to meditation techniques you know, we, we need techniques in the beginning most of us do to get ourselves going. You'll hear some teachers teach from a place of possibly their own realization where they no longer need techniques. But did they start off with techniques? Quite likely they did. And, and so one has to be quite discerning when you hear teachers talking about you don't need techniques or uh, the techniques are not necessary or any effort that you make is wrong effort. Say, so, well, that might be true for you for where you're at at your stage of practice. But for me, at my stage of practice, I need something to do. I need a technique. I need to learn my level of right effort, that right kind of control, that right kind of watching over this heart and mind. And then maybe as time goes by, well, then it could well be true that well, you get a feeling for all this use of techniques. It's just I'm just controlling my mind the whole time. You know, I just don't want to feel what I'm feeling. You know, maybe there's all sorts of desires or anger or fear that, that perhaps we've just kind of been keeping away with meditation. And maybe that's the right thing you know, to use meditation techniques in the beginning. We, it's right sometimes to keep things out of the mind until we get a feeling for another relationship with our inner reality. But then once we've got that, inner relationship. Once we've got an inner, a relationship with our inner world better established, it's like getting to know somebody. You get to know somebody. In the beginning, you don't reveal all the secrets and problems of your life. Hopefully, that's kind of a bit embarrassing when people do that. You, know, you approach it gradually you, until slowly trust develops between you. And then if trust is really well established, then you know that you can share absolutely anything with this person. And what is trust? Well... How do you define trust? Trust is difficult, it's nebulous. It shows up with a feeling of being safe with somebody. And if you can assess that, you've tested it, and you say, yeah, I really feel safe with this person, and then trust is established. Well, similarly, within, our, within, within ourselves. You know, finding out how to establish a sense of trust within ourselves. Learning to keep precepts. And seeing the relationship between precepts. Now, as we keep precepts, maybe in the past we didn't keep precepts. I was a shocker when I was young. I was breaking all sorts of precepts all over the place. And the painful consequences I've had to endure as the years have gone by uh, of remembering and, and enduring the habits of, of not having precepts when I was younger. 
But then you reach a point in your life and say, well, actually, I can't afford to not keep precepts. And so you see a relationship. You, you have a considered, informed relationship with the precepts. So it's not just another extension of our ego's tendency to want to control everything. Precepts can be like that. You can be so obsessed with our precepts that it's just an extension of our control freakery. But hopefully also, as we consider, we can say, well, actually, I need to keep precepts. There's a direct relationship between this exercise to live impeccably with a life of integrity and my sense of self-trust and self-respect. Just as outwardly, if I have a relationship with somebody and they're dishonest or deceitful in some way, trust is damaged. Likewise within myself, if I know that I'm not honest or whatever, then trust is damaged within myself. So we learn that for ourselves. We see, all oh, right. And so this is the right kind of way of holding, just as the right way of holding the, the steering wheel or holding the musical instrument or tuning the musical instrument, the right way of holding the precepts, the right way of holding our meditation object, the right way of holding our awareness, the right way of holding ourselves. You know, this young monk that gave rise to this story, he was too compulsive. He was, he was trying too hard. and Maybe his teachers were not very sensitive either and they were kind of trying to make him understand stuff too soon as well. And they were to recognize and encourage him. They were just, just, just watch this. Just control this here, our own heart and mind, and see if that can take us to ease of being. So the effort that we make, whether it's with regards to our formal meditation or in our daily life, uh, to, to be careful that we have this feeling awareness going, so we're always assessing. If, of course, our practice is already taking us to contentment and ease of being, wonderful. But if it's not, well, it's maybe not the case that we have to try to do something more or we have to try harder. Maybe we need to just hold our attention in a slightly different way. It can be very subtle. If we are moving towards the right kind of holding of effort, then insights start to appear. Understanding starts to appear. You start to see, say, oh, right. Look at that view that I was was holding on to for so long that was getting in the way of my practice. We start to see for ourselves. You know. If we're just hammering away at our meditation technique trying to reach the goal, well, maybe we don't see that there's these underlying uh, views that are distorting and disfiguring. It's like, for instance, this uh, compulsive judging tendency, which so many of us have, which is another expression of our uh, conditioned effort to control everything. Or is it James saying, it shouldn't be this way. It should be that way. So you you can notice it when you're, if you're watching television, you're watching the news and you say, indignation. It shouldn't be like that. How dare they do that? That energy comes, ah, that's it. The compulsive judging mind has kicked in. And when that happens, say, oh, this is very good. This is very good to see. It's very painful. It's not very nice. And we might not want to see it. But in reality... When we do get to see the compulsive judging mind, it's very helpful. That view that we've been holding too tightly, 
that ability of our minds to discern, which is wonderful in itself, the ability of the mind to discern and to discriminate and to assess and evaluate, of course that's wonderful that we have that tendency. It helps protect us and helps keep us safe as we move through life. But if we hold that activity of mind that's assessing, discriminating, evaluating, we hold it too tightly, which because, again, of our education, many of us are taught to. So I am as intelligent, as worthy, as worthwhile, as valuable as I can discriminate. My discriminative intelligence defines who and what I am. And that's often the case in the way that we've been taught. And so we really get off on it. And it can be fun for a while to be really clever, more clever than anybody else, and top of the class and get all the points, win all the exams, get the top job. But the heart can be chronically divided. Or similarly with our religious beliefs, the kind of religion we're brought up with, if we have a tendency towards fundamentalism, and then I am right and everybody else is wrong. Everybody who doesn't believe in what I believe in is wrong. That's, that's surely not the essence of any true religion, uh, certainly not the essence of Buddhist teaching. And for what I know of Christianity, the essence of Christianity is love, which is not everybody else is wrong and rejected and is going to go to hell. But if we have been taught, if we have been uh, indoctrinated with that kind of uh, holding to a religious view too tightly, then our heart is chronically divided. Yeah. These are the saved ones and those are the sinners that are out there. Yeah. Or if it's intellectual arrogance, you know, I am smarter than everybody else, the rest of them are a bunch of, of dummies. Yeah. Well, if we... Uh, are meditating in a way that is paying attention to the kind of effort we're making and we're moving towards that just right attunement of effort, we start to see these things for ourselves. We start to see this, this oh, that's too tight. Ouch. that, That view of myself in relationship to others, ouch. Or... Or that that religious view or that compulsive judging view. We see, oh, look at that, that compulsive judging tendency. And when we see it, that's the very point, in fact, probably the only point at which letting go can happen. And so it's really profoundly important, the kind of effort that we're making, if we're just trying too hard all the time. It's not our own personal realized, arrived at, just right kind of watching over, protecting, guarding of the mind, then these perspectives, these understandings of what we need to let go of, maybe they they won't emerge. So one more thing to say about that that compulsive judging mind, and and, and it relates to the the Dhammapada verse that I was quoting this evening, my rendering of the Dhammapada verse, when I'd um, put together my my rendering of the Dhammapada verse for contemplation. It was not a literal translation of it. It was something that uh, was born out of my own reading of of various translations and encouraging other people to have their own contemplation on the Dhammapada. And um, uh, uh, somebody who 
helped me with it had commented on how useful it was to have a form of the Dhammapada which was not loaded with a lot of um, judgmentalism and not a lot of, of, of judging uh, words. And uh, I thought that was a fair enough assessment of my rendering because I wanted the Dhamma, as I believe the Buddha taught it, to encourage people to feel good about it, to want to take it in, to want to chew on it, to, to find their own understanding. What is the Buddha pointing at here with these verses? And whereas if the, the verse is too loaded with judgmental words, judgmental language, then that's very off-putting. Anyway, it so happened that a, uh, a well-known Buddhist scholar uh, was, was reading um, this assessment of my, my rendering of the Dhammapada and, and made comments which amounted to a criticisms of this very point, that, that actually uh, he was saying that it's important to be judgmental uh, because some things are wrong and some things are right. And uh, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's very interesting. Well, because of course some things are wrong and some things are right. Of course, that's obvious. But that's not what my friend and I were pointing at, this compulsive judging tendency of mine, where judgment is being infected by emotional input, yeah. where judgment is not a neutral assessment or evaluation of a situation as being right or wrong, but it's a rejecting, pushing away. And, and so much of our conditioning, our educational conditioning, our secular educational conditioning, our religious conditioning, so much of that has divided our heart because of all the, the compulsive uh, tendencies uh, that come with it. You know, like For a lot of us, it's been that, that God is a judging God. You know, that if you're not in, you go to hell forever. And so this fundamentally divided mind, divided heart, divided consciousness can produce a view of life that is fundamentally divided. You're either for us or you're against us. And there can be no ease in that. And, and surely all of us who've been meditating for any length of time know that that's the case, that even the aspects of ourselves that are unwholesome, that are unskillful, that are wrong, need to be received into awareness before we can let go of them. So when I talk about learning to let go of the compulsive judging mind, that's not to dismiss or diminish the capacity we have for assessing or evaluating or judging things as right or wrong, but it's aimed at changing our relationship to it. So just with driving a car, just with tuning a musical instrument, just with being on the keyboard, if we're exercising the right relationship, the right kind of effort, the just right for us kind of effort, then it will lead to ease of being, not to increase suffering. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.